0: Welcome to Sundial on WLRN, I'm Carlos Frias. The characters in Patricia Engel's new book, The Faraway World, are scattered. They work in factories in New Jersey where they save for plastic surgery. They run drugs in Miami and try to hold on to their boyfriends. They drive taxis in Cuba and dream of other lives with other women. They clean Catholic churches in Colombia. Wherever they are, Patricia puts them through the ringer. They lose a sister. They're hit by cars, they cheat and are cheated on, sometimes they even struggle to write. Many of them are contorting themselves to fit into what Patricia's called the United States of Diasporica. Ultimately, these characters feel. They confront those feelings. We watch them change. At their best, Patricia's characters feel real enough to make us consider the actual people around us. Patricia's latest novel. Patricia's last novel was a New York Times bestseller, *Infinite Country*. This time, she's given us a collection of short stories she wrote over the course of a decade. She'll be presenting them at Books and Books in Coral Gables tomorrow night. Here to talk about it is Patricia Engel. Welcome, Patricia.
1: Hi, Carlos. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I
0: see you got your jacket on because in our cold studio, so we're all warmed up here it today. It's
1: chilly in here. <laughs>
0: You know, one thing that that I thought about when I was going through the book and they're varied stories uh, and they really they touch on so much of parts of the parts of the world. Mm -hmm. I I thought about you being born in New Jersey Mm -hmm. and yet you've trained your eyes on the stories of immigrants and the lies of immigrants. And I wonder why this is such an interesting field for you to keep exploring and keep coming back to.
1: Yeah, the only life that I have ever known is one as the daughter of Colombian immigrants. Mm -hmm. And the only life I've ever known has been as a part of a very large immigrant family and connected to other immigrant families that formed our larger community. So that's my world. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I've navigated other worlds through the course of my life as well. But I am most inspired by uh, those original impressions uh, immigrants and their families are, are my heroes. They're my greatest inspirations. They are, they are the people that most fascinate me. And as a daughter of immigrants, when I was coming up as a young reader and really just feeling rooted and connected and excited by books, I found that there was a huge gap in what was available in, um, in American literature.
0: You didn't see yourself represented in that?
1: No, and it's not like I was looking for myself. I wasn't looking for, you know, you don't read for vanity. You don't read for a direct reflection of yourself. But something, some sort of bridge or through line, um, I really felt that there were gaps. Um, And I think those were my first impulses to write was toward those voids that I I sensed. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing at all. But that continues to be where I begin to address those readers who are coming from communities that are not reflected in contemporary American literature and to end uh, for those people who are who are looking to build friendships with characters from communities that are not like their own yeah
0: it's funny because you talk about heroes and like Yeah, my my grandmother, who I call my grandmother, my abuelita, was really the next-door neighbor who helped raise me, and Mm -hmm. she was a writer in Cuba. Mm -hmm. And my parents, you know, like, they were these folks who, like, had their own business, you know, their little jewelry store and what have you, and, and they were my heroes. And I'm wondering, like, are there specific folks? Will you talk about some of your heroes?
1: Well, I have no greater hero than my own parents. But my parents are very typical in that they like you know your family you just mentioned the people you know they launched themselves into the great unknown mm. by virtue of leaving their homeland, not knowing for how long if they were if it was just going to be temporal and they were going to return home ever, but either way. Uh, whether they were fueled by dreams or ambition or desire or simply curiosity, that is a massive, massive risk.
0: What a leap of faith.
1: You know, That's a risk that I don't even know if a person like you or a person like me could could take to leave everything that you've ever known to just start over completely from scratch an entirely new place where you don't speak the language where you're not necessarily welcomed and maybe you're rejected by the society already um in charge there that's that's a very tall order and it's also a very tall emotional order knowing that you are the one responsible for really disrupting your family's history wow your children are going to be different from you Know, uh-huh. and they are going to lose that connection to the homeland over time. You know, that's something that goes away very um, in subtle ways from one generation to the next, and it begins with the loss of language and tradition and culture, all those things that happen in diaspora, uh, in the condition of immigration. And when you place that burden on the, in the, the first people who took that step, whether it be your parents or your grandparents or whoever, the disruptor of the family story, well, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot for a person to carry. Uh, at the same time, think of all the beautiful things that come out of such a risk. Yeah. Uh, sure, it always comes with challenges and difficulties and sorrows and homesickness, but there's so much beauty born out of that that risk-taking as well, and that just uh, is what I'm constantly trying to unpack in, in my writing.
0: I think about my own mother who at one point, when I was interviewing her for my book... Uh, she said, if I would known that I was never coming back, I might never have left. And so mm-hmm. you, you're talking about these first folks that make these big decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it gives you some insight into the world of that vacillating of how they must have gone back and forth. And, and you get into that. And in a lot of the, in the characters in your book, they, they do vacillate. And they're, they're very complex in, in their feelings and their emotions.
1: Yeah, some people have this idea that the the desire to move, to immigrate, is something that everyone just does, you know, with full force. Running towards the door, you know, to get out of wherever they are. No into the new place. Yeah, and you never look back, right. right? In fact, I've always found in the communities that I grew up in that it's, it's very different. It's full of regrets. Yeah. It's full of wondering if you made the right choice. It's full of longing and dreaming for the life you left and wondering if you could ever go back to it, especially if you have left loved ones behind who are still in the same place living that life. And another story that I've tried to explore in the faraway world throughout it is that there are a great many people who have no desire to ever leave their homeland, right? So then what does that do to relationships, to families, when there are those who leave, when there are those who stay?
0: Anytime that there's been immigration, there's always families Mm -hmm. torn apart or pulled apart or living apart. Mm -hmm. And that that just creates that tension, you know, that just creates a tension. What what is your own... A parents immigrant story will you share a little bit of that
1: yeah my parents um, met in Flushing Queens when they were both living there uh, with their families separately but my mother had to go back to Colombia and so she did but I guess my father had already fallen very much in love and he proposed to her over the telephone a couple months later. She was in Colombia and yeah, he was in New York yeah, and he proposed say, to her over the phone? Yeah and then he went uh, he went to Bogota and asked for her hand uh, formally wow. and they were married six months or so later and then she came uh, back with him and and they stayed in the United States um, for a time they went to live in Puerto Rico for a few years when my brother was born and the rest of that time they were back in the United States and I remember throughout my childhood, my mother um, oh, shared with me from time to time that she always thought she would go back. She always thought, you know, we'll do something here and then we'll go back. Mm-hmm. She left all her family in Bogota. What brought her here? My father.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, right when she left originally. <laughs> yeah, when but she the, w- oh when the, first, the time, first time yeah. she
1: came with her mothers and sisters. She was studying.
0: Oh, she was studying. Yeah, she came to school.
1: Uh, and um, and so um, she, then she told me. When I was old enough to understand, I remember I was—I must have been 13 or 14, that there came a moment when she realized her life was here now. Mm-hmm. And, and and that was it. And she she never really looked back beyond that. She realized her life was here. And being older now, looking back, I, I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for her. Yeah. Um, also to have children born and raised in an entirely different culture. Uh, she did an amazing job of, of you know, um, teaching us about um, my parents' country and speaking Spanish to us and, um, you know, passing on all the important things. But we grew up very differently. You just simply cannot deny that, right? Yeah. And I think there must have been a lot of loss um, in that as well, knowing that we would not know the streets of her neighborhood the way she did. We would not even experience the intimacy of the weather in the land the way that she did. We would only experience that on vacation. You know, I remember my mother, uh, my mom just passed last year, actually, but I oh, remember. I'm so sorry. Thank you. My, um, every single time that the weather in New Jersey hit, 62 degrees Was chilly and overcast She would step outside and say It's just like Bogota Wow! And you know I, I would always hear her say this And I just okay But uh, as I've gotten older I realized That visceral connection to the weather To the climate And how that just transported her Every single time And she lived with that Every single time And it just shows you how we leave a place But we carry it within us No matter where we go What's that old saying? Like, no matter where you go, there you are. There you are. And so it goes with immigration. So it goes with the way humans navigate this planet, which is really the order of the world. It's movement, right? Right. And perpetually in motion, and that's how we continue as a species. Right. Um, but at the same time, we carry so much within us. We carry our points of origin down to the weather, down to the temperature, down to the climate forget about all our memories, all the people we've loved, all the places we've spent, our most important moments. All of that lives within us.
0: And, and there's there's so much of that in your books that you've like infused some of those, you, I can feel some of those memories of your mother and those stories infused in the book. I'm thinking of even like Aguacero at the end. Uh, well, like you said, as far, it doesn't matter where you end up in life like you're always rooted to that place where you're born, like sea turtles and what have you. And, and this idea of um, without giving too much away, uh, this one character uh, being, being held captive and then is free and just enjoying being in the outside and being uh, uh, appreciating the outdoors and, and kind of painting that picture of what the part of Colombia that he's in, you know, uh, it's so moving. And, and to hear you talk about it really, it brings it into perspective.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's a story that, that uh, does explore this idea of both um, actual physical and emotional captivity, right? The way that there you have a character here who, who was uh, kidnapped and held captive for a period of time. But there's so much, even after he's freed, that he still carries within him a kind of prison that endures even after he's liberated. So I like to explore in the stories as well, just that kind of Borders, but also borderlessness, Um, how we can belong to a place, but also what happens when we don't, when we free ourselves beyond it, when we can really learn who we are free of things that have ties to certain fixed identities down to our citizenship. You know, it's it's not always all good stuff that, that is connected with all that. So who are we? As people, when we're stripped of all those reminders of who we're supposed to be,
0: right? And you, you touched on that in, in your novel, just about the the randomness of committing a crime in a place that's a different place, you know, and uh, the random the randomness of how the rules change of where you end up and what have you. Yes, yes. Um, you're you're obviously not just a great storyteller in print. Here you are out today, telling great stories. Was there a big storyteller in your life? Was there someone who who you love to hear tell stories?
1: Yeah, I think. I think this is so typical, too, of families who immigrate, because really, sometimes the only thing that we take with us when we leave one country and go to another is our stories, right? Mm-hmm. And it becomes so important to pass those on from one generation to the next. So I think storytelling is really how human beings make sense of the life and find meaning in order to all this chaos of life, right? But it becomes more essential when you leave a homeland and come to another, because it's, it's your only way to remember. So... Uh, The big storyteller in my family, although everyone was a storyteller in my family, but the big one was my grandmother, my abuela, just like yours, who was an actual writer. She had nine children, and somehow in her free time, she wrote Up a Storm.
0: Free time. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: And uh, so she was my first example of a writer. But I have to say, stories were all around, you know. And stories are not always this formalized thing, like a beginning, middle, and end, with lessons and morals and plots and whatever. Sometimes they're just cheese, me. right? (laughs) And of course, that's where you learn about characters and what makes people interesting, what makes people tick, what motivates them, and their imperfections and flaws and errors and all the mistakes they get in, which makes life very interesting. So I I just heard stories all around me all the time and I'm so fascinated by people and fundamentally the faraway world is made up of 10 short stories that are about people. They're people stories, right? It's people making mistakes, people driven by desire, um, carrying some heartache here, carrying hope in the other pocket and just living.
0: Yeah. Well, let's. We're gonna hear more about the cheese that makes your characters tick. <laughs> but we're gonna take a little break. Uh, we've been speaking with author Patricia Engel. Uh, she has a new story collection called *The Faraway World* that's out now. Take a break, and we'll be back on Sundial in a minute. we're back on sundial this is carlos Frias, and our guest today is the author patricia engel she is based in miami and she has a wonderful new story collection called the faraway world and uh, patricia will you um we we talked about um this this um you know these characters in your book they're motivated by a million things Cheese may being among among <laughs> them but um there's a story in your in your collection that's uh, one of your latest ones one of your newest ones um will you read just uh, the opening parts of it for us
1: Yeah, I'm gonna read from a story called Livelula. It was recently published in Oprah Daily. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about it before I start, it's narrated by a woman who uh, finds work for another Colombian woman in New York. The first time we met, you asked me to tea. It was at an Italian bakery not far from where you lived. You ordered for me a cappuccino and a chocolate pastry. You didn't want me to see your home yet. You confessed that later, months after you'd offered me the job to clean and supplement care for the baby you planned to have, though you said you would also hire a nanny. You complimented my sweater and my nails. You asked if I painted them myself, and when I told you I did, you said you would pay me extra to do yours too. We were the same age, but you spoke as if much older, as if I were a child and you were my educator. You explained the neighborhood. When you showed me around your apartment a few days later, you you presented your park view as if it were a blue blood family crest. Your husband was traveling. I would not meet him for several more weeks, but he participated in our discussions when you told me he liked his boxers ironed, his collars pinned, his shoes sorted according to hue. You'd met in infancy, you said. Your families knew each other for generations. You came to this country together for university and were permitted to live together with the understanding that you would marry after graduation, and you both complied. In another life, I might have also been your maid back in Colombia. You might have inherited me from your mother, who employed my mother, or I might have arrived at your door referred by one of your friends, who was employed by one of yours. I also came to this country with a man who pledged to marry me. In the end, I was the one who escaped vows, and he returned to Medellin because this country did not deliver on its promises. I didn't say any of this when you hired me. You only knew I'd been employed as a housekeeper for years by a Swiss family on the west side who'd relocated to Dubai. You wanted someone to work full-time, the way it was when you were growing up, not a -a once-a-week cleaner, as was common around here. You wanted a woman to be there when you woke up to serve your breakfast on the dining table and disappear in the evening when your husband returned from work and you would wait for him at the same table in an outfit you modeled for me earlier, asking if it was obvious you'd gained a few pounds. You wanted a ghost a shadow to move about your home, anticipating your every need, as a double as loyal as an imaginary friend to accompany you, potentially until your death, when I would be retired and returned to my relatives. This proposal did not offend me because I was raised as you were, but on the other side of such an arrangement. And as you assured me when you offered me the position, I would be well compensated.
0: Well, I think... Thank you for doing that. Can you talk about what inspired that story?
1: Well, I thought about two women who were very similar in age and even from the same place who ended up on very different paths in the same new place, Mm -hmm. in the same country. This is very common. And uh, one of the things about the stories in the faraway world is sometimes people think, wow, you know, that's you know, how did you come up with that? But really, they're kind of typical experiences. Look around, right? Yeah. If you just know where to look, you'll see stories like this all around you. So it's a story about one woman who comes to work for another and how they almost um, transpose the class systems that they have left behind and have... You know, thought that they were breaking by virtue of emigrating, but essentially recreate them in the new place, which is also something that's not uncommon.
0: Those surprise things that we bring with us. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and also that sort of intimacy. That occurs when people live in the same household, even though they occupy different roles—one working for the other. Mm-hmm. So it's navigating those very fine lines, but also very much from a woman-centered perspective. And it's a story that is really a world of women, and I wanted to uh, show that that intimacy.
0: Did that? Did that come from a? Where did you see that in your in your like in your life and your experience? Because we hear about th- those stories that, that being very common in Latin America, mm-hmm. growing, you know, and, uh, and and we see it here in Miami. Like walk through the walk through the Gables at the time when most folks are off at work, and and you'll have like you'll see a, a nanny pushing a, a baby in a stroller. And uh, well, yeah, I think
1: I, you I just say. answered it for me. <laughs> it's all around, <laughs> it's all around. And one of the pleasures of writing about fiction is I get to write away from my life. Mm-hmm um the far away world is my fifth book right and certainly if I were sitting around just thinking about my own experiences i, I probably would have run out of material a long time ago <laughs> um but also it wouldn't be interesting for me yeah and uh i i'm just like you have eyes open to the to the world all around and and these are some just things that i, I think about, uh, things that stick with me at the end of the day. And over time, they, they come together in my mind to, to put together a story. But again, it's always rooted in people, in, in the human experience. It's not just a concept. It's not just an issue or a motif. It's really, for example, in the story of Libellula, it's, it's about one woman and how she comes into the life of the other and the effects that they each have on one another.
0: One thing that also grabbed my attention in that story later on, libelola means dragonfly, mm-hmm. and there is a little bit of meeting of meeting and clashing of cultures because, mm-hmm. like, I grew up here, American, like you, uh, where a dragonfly landing on you is good luck, mm-hmm. but in Colombia it means you and in, you infer from the story that it means something different.
1: Yeah, and actually they're they're both from Colombia, so even in their two different neighborhoods, the same thing uh, has two different meanings. Of course, and. and uh, well, we don't want to give away the story right now. Right. Yeah, we don't <laughs> want
0: to give away, but it does. But that that idea of uh, you land in a new place and your your alphabet is different, so to speak. You mm-hmm. know, your your reference points, your vocabulary is different mm-hmm. uh, in in that new place. Um, the other thing that's interesting here is that well, there's a mom involved, um, and there uh, those relationships involved. And now that I, th- I think about that story coming out last year, I was wondering. I remember when I when my kids were born. They're big now, amazingly. I, that happened overnight. But I remember when they were born, the things I was interested in, not changed, but I it opened up new pathways to explore. And I was wondering if that's happened to you at all since.
1: Uh, well, the stories in the Faraway World were written over the past ten or twelve years. So I was uh, writing three other novels at the time. Oh,
0: you weren't busy at all. (laughs) (laughs) So these
1: stories um, really came, you know, before, during, and after uh, three different longer books that I was writing at those times. And I was really immersed in different worlds of those novels and interested in different things. And I think the stories, um, reflect that I what I was concerned with and exploring at different points and and, you know 12 years is a long time yeah yeah. Um, however as I came to put the collection together I realized that there were things that kept coming up and and in a way all these stories were in conversation with one another Um, I've always been interested in family dynamics but again I'm a fiction writer so I have to inhabit my characters and really take myself out of it one story where as an example of that is the first story in the book it's called aida and it's a story about two twin sisters now i do not have a sister never had a sister and i certainly don't have a twin right um but that is a story so squarely centered on the twin sister experience right and so i had to immerse myself in that and and
0: can I ask how you do that?
1: Well, yeah. Something it's, so
0: foreign. How do you begin to to make it so that it feels when you're writing, it feels you're writing from an authentic place?
1: Yeah. The beginning threads come with curiosity and interest. Because I never had a sister, I was always you know, longing for a sister and wished I had a sister and I never did. Uh, I do know some twins and I have twins in my family and I've just observed that kind of very close relationship and how it's different from a typical sibling relationship. So that interested me. And very often it just stems from me observing something and being like, I want to know more. And from there, research begins. But research is, is a tricky word because it implies, you know, things like investigation and the academic side of it. But research is as much human research, and it's as much um, empathy research, it's as much it requires just as much me going inward, and trying to imagine and excavate enough compassion to be able to imagine the experience in a way that feels authentic, but also honors the truth of that experience, which I do not have, right. Uh, And whether I'm writing about a mother, a daughter, a sister, a lover, a wife, a friend, anything, I have to exclude my own experience because then that's just prioritizing my experience over everyone's in the whole world, right? I always want to prioritize the experience of that particular character, just like no two fingerprints are the same, no two people are the same, even if they're doing exactly the same thing.
0: Right. So you write something very similar to that line in the book at one point about... uh Something, something being more um, uh, unique than a fingerprint. Uh, oh, a
1: look reveals more than a fingerprint. A look reveals more than a
0: fingerprint. Um, c- you talk about this, this quote-unquote research, this kind of internal research of internal dialogue, but you do physical research. Like uh, you're not Cuban, but you've yeah. written from the Cuban perspective a couple times. Can you talk about a little bit about like how you do something like that?
1: Yeah. Um, There are three stories in the faraway world that are set in Cuba, and those stories came about um, because when I was researching my novel, The Veins of the Ocean, which is partly set in Cuba, and the rest is set in South Florida and the Florida Keys, I made um, 10 or so research trips to Cuba during that time. Again, because I wanted to get the details right and out of respect for the individuals and communities that I was writing about, that's why I spent so much time there. But you can't go to a place and spend time in a place and not be personally affected and impacted by it, right? I spent so much time there that I'm it's it's i living life simultaneously, right, next to parallel with my research. So there was a lot from that period of time that did not go into the veins of the ocean, but that really impacted me, made an impression on me. And so they took the form of short stories.
0: You kind of store it away in your mind yeah. and thinking this was... Yeah. This, is, this is copy. I forget which was the TV writer who said everything is copy.
1: Nora Ephron. <laughs> uh,
0: was it Nora Ephron? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have a voluminous, uh, like, you have an encyclopedic mind for for writers and things that have been written. It sounds like.
1: No, I don't think
0: so. I, but I, I mean, you nailed Nora <laughs> Ephron. That was a, that was a that was a deep cut uh, from Nora Ephron. I think. Um, so there, that idea, like you said, there's a there's a you. I want to say you wrote an essay once uh, uh, talking mm. about. Um, one of the drivers you know los choferes, the private mm-hmm. folks who privately own cars and drive people mm-hmm. here and there as if they were taxis and, and there's a character in this book yeah. uh, that is a fictionalized a, mm-hmm. a fictionalized person and um, yeah I was very curious about that because how you take how you become how you go into those worlds you know um, especially when it's a different culture you know totally yeah. I mean similar in that everybody speaks Spanish and mm-hmm. that's part of it mm-hmm. uh, but outside of that very different you know and having to. And making it feel so like someone who's Cuban reads it and they're like, you know, that feels authentic.
1: Yeah, and uh, um, thank you for saying that. But those details really just come from watching and listening to people and, again, taking myself out of it. It's not about me. It's not about pushing any sort of symbolic or symbolic agenda or, you know, literary messaging in a story. Or making characters do what I want them to do, um, it's the place begins to tell you the story when pe- when people start to show themselves, and you just watch and you listen.
0: You, I mean, this is your life, and this is your life now in writing. I'm curious about your your lives outside of writing. What was your life before you were a writer with a capital W for a living? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I was always a writer with a little w <laughs> you know i <laughs> i um I've been writing as as long as I've known how to write. Yeah. I come from a really artistic and creative family. Um, There were musicians and painters in my family, and creativity was really strongly encouraged. So when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a painter, an artist, and I used to draw a lot. But as soon as I learned how to write, I would put, you know, captions on my drawings, and the captions just became longer and longer, and they became stories. I was also a rather obsessive uh, journaler.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that tracks.
1: Yeah. So I, but so you've been
0: spent. You spent a lot of time thinking. Deeply about situations that happen and plumbing your own
1: yeah Making meaning you know that that's what that's what we do as humans. We're always trying to make meaning and and that was my natural expression my parents you know kept me supplied with notebooks and pens and There I went so I I mean I have dozens and dozens and dozens of of journals um, and But I wrote privately I wrote for myself I never was the kind of kid who would say, look what I wrote, look what I did, and I never got much attention for that. and I went to college. I did not study writing. What did you study? I studied French and art history.
0: Oh, okay. So so yeah. really you were gonna go out and make money in the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and I was in New York City. Listen,
0: I was an anthropology major. Yeah, I feel you so. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: and and I had some jobs after college, but I was still always writing on my own. I started taking What uh, were your jobs in college? Like after college? Yeah. Um I worked at an investment bank, oh, okay. I worked at an auction house, I worked in real estate and human resources, a, oh, b- a bunch what of did, things.
0: What did all those things teach you about like what you did and didn't want to do or maybe did they, does it play into your writing? Well, t- when I today? had
1: the opportunity then to um, do a master's in writing, I jumped at the opportunity because I thought, wow, you know, I know what it's like to have to um, put a day job first. So I thought, wow, this is really... That's why I came to, to Florida, because I have, I have three years to do nothing but write. What a luxury. What a gift. And uh, that was the first big step that I took. I that was is in a my big late t- I was in my late 20s already. And when I uh, did that program, I just committed myself to it. I wrote like a maniac. I wrote and wrote and wrote. I read everything they recommended to me, and I just thought this is an opportunity one does not get twice right yeah and um, when I finished that degree um, you know then all of a sudden you're out of the whole rigors of of a program and not writing for a workshop and deadlines and things like that but by then I had practice uh, cultivated a good discipline a good practice and I was being very productive and I wrote a book um, that I finished a year after that. And then I, I started submitting work to contests and publications and getting some publications and winning some things. And I got an agent and-
0: Now wait, that's a big yeah. step. The first mm-hmm. step that you decide <clears throat> that the writing is not for you anymore and that you're not showing it to anyone, the mm-hmm. first time that you show it to someone, do yeah. you remember the, like that first bit of feedback that catapulted you into the next thing? And to continue Honestly, I don't
1: remember the first time <laughs> I don't, um, but, you know, I, I had been in the workplace. I knew what it was like to get feedback and criticism. I didn't take anything personally. I knew I was there to learn.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I was, I've told this story before, but like I remember seeing the first newspaper story mm-hmm. I wrote in a, for the college magazine and then, or the college newspaper and then walking around campus and seeing people read it. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. And, you know, and that's deciding I'm going to write for a living. And, well, I mean, I'm not doing that now. But I'm curious what it was for you. Like, when was the point where you said, I think I can write. I think I want to write for a living.
1: I don't think I ever articulated such a sustained thought about it. I just thought I'm going to try to finish a book. And then I finished a book. And then.
0: Which was that book?
1: My first book, Vida.
0: Vida, okay. Mm,
1: which is a novel and short stories.
0: And 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 got great reviews, mm-hmm. like instantly well received.
1: Yeah, and when it was sold uh, to a publisher, they, they bought a, a second book from me that I had not yet written. So I thought, well, I'm going to get to write a second book, so I'll write the, another book. And it was really just one book led to another. And I I felt so lucky the whole way through because, of course, when one writes, one never knows if you'll find readers. And and uh, that's, that's really the day-by-day perspective that I had on it, just doing the work.
0: Right. It's funny because we had uh, uh, Jonathan Escoffrey on the show. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's just hearing these conversations, someone who's in Miami and talking about immigrant experiences and someone who comes to writing later as a discovery. He was through the FIU program, Mm -hmm. and he has a great story. I think his first story begins with, like, a second-person Narrative is very interesting, but um, I want to take a little bit of a break and then when we come back I want to hear all your Miami credentials Uh, So we've been talking with Patricia Engel Uh, She's a best-selling writer and she has a new story collection the faraway world. We back in a minute on Sundial We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest today is Patricia Engel, the New York Times bestselling writer, who's got a fantastic new story collection, "The Faraway World," uh, which you will be presenting at Books and Books tomorrow.
1: Yeah, tomorrow night.
0: Um, we talk about a lot about culture and race, you know, in you know, as immigrants in general. when you confront, like, you know, um, this question of where do we, where you fit in, into this society where you've landed. You grew up in New Jersey. You spent a lot of time moving about the world. You've now lived in Miami 10 years?
1: No, almost 20. Almost
0: 20, almost yeah. 20 years. Mm-hmm. So you can almost call yourself a local. And mm-hmm. I'm curious about, talk to me a little bit about how we talk about culture differently here versus New Jersey.
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I've, I've thought about it so explicitly. Um, certainly when I moved here, 20 years ago, uh, and I I had spent a lot of time in Miami before moving here, so, you know, I I was familiar with it. But I think because... um, Did you have family here? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, And uh, I grew up coming with my family. Okay. Um, I think because the, you know, Latin American um, diasporic community here has such a large presence, that's something very unique to Miami, very special,
0: right? Did you you notice that, like, on your first time? Well,
1: I mean, I don't recall noticing, and it. it just sort of is. It just sort of is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, and um, you might find something close to it in certain pockets of the Northeast, but certainly not as widespread um, as in Miami and or in South Florida. And I, I think that's quite special because it allows communities here to feel um, – you know more at ease with holding on to their traditions to their to their to you know aspects of their culture that that they might um, might be harder to hold on to in in a in a city where where there's not such um, you know a a general presence or support or of of their communities.
0: It makes space for it makes Mm -hmm. room for it, that kind of thing. I want to say there's a character in your book who just like the the feel of the ocean Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't help, you know, again, it's like this hearing these stories, hearing these stories that you told about, um, you know, these characters just feeling more at home with somehow, you know, when you're near the water or near or near mm-hmm. Miami and what have you, because it's such a way station for different Latin cultures. And yeah, such. yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's what makes it so special.
0: How do you think that's influenced your writing to be here and, and to be around so many cultures climbing over the top of each other <laughs> to to kind of keep their own identities, I guess.
1: Well, I think it's influenced me in different ways at different points. Um, Certainly my novel, The Veins of the Ocean, is very much a South Florida novel. Because I did not grow up here, when I arrived, and I I moved here from New York City, so I was just like, oh my God, mesmerized by the natural world, the ocean, the weather, um, the vegetation. Um, Maybe these are things that people who live there all their lives take for granted a little bit. Just like I maybe take for granted New York City, you know urbanization or even the mountains of the Northeast or snow, right? Right? Um but I arrived with an outsider's sense of enchantment and um, and wonder. And from there, that novel was born. And I still carry that in different ways. I still have even though I've been here for a long time, and I'm an insider in a limited way because I did not grow up here because I, um, my family does not have firm roots here. Um, all my family lives elsewhere at this point. So, um, so I kind of ride that line between insider and outsider in Miami. And I think that allows me to both see, you know, um, into the place, but also, rem- maintain some objectivity about it
0: yeah there's something important to be Mm -hmm. able to step out from it and not feel like you're betraying it Mm -hmm. by painting it just as it is Mm -hmm. at times and it's in its crazy nature but
1: I love that about South Orla I love its contrasts. I love its imperfections I think there's so much beauty and in in beauty no definition of beauty is perfection right it's it's full of flaws um, and a rambunctious energy, but at the same time, a sublime beauty, natural beauty, and I just, I just love those edges, how they push up against each other.
0: I'd argue that some of your your characters are like that. There's no, there's never a totally good guy and a total bad guy in it. Everybody has layers yeah uh, you know going in between you know
1: i mean is there any total good guy or bad guy in reality i mean life? i'm a good guy i'm 100% <laughs> i don't know what nobody's you're talking perfect. about nobody's perfect nobody's perfect but i i try to write towards the truth of life and that that requires putting those things um out there in, on, in the visible surface the the flaws the imperfections and of course there's people doing bad things for the right reasons and the right things for the wrong reasons
0: right right, right. it's so true you know, we talk about being rooted to a place. I'm curious about, you know, your family's from Colombia. Mm-hmm. What was it like going to Colombia for the first time and having them, having your folks show you their world, you know?
1: Well, I don't know, because I was so little.
0: <laughs> oh, so you were very yeah. little when you first went? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, you know, I have very vague memories of, of the first time because I was so young, and uh, and I went, you know, throughout my childhood at, at different points, and then What struck you and,
0: about, about the place as you went over the years and— and saw the the differences in cultures, I guess.
1: Oh, so many things in different ways, right? My mother um, was from Bogota, mountain city, high in the Andes, so different from any place where I grew up, right? And my father's from Medellin, you know, the city of the eternal spring, also so beautiful and unlike any place uh, where I grew up. Um, but. The thing that I always feel when I go back to Colombia, even though I go for different reasons, or I go for, you know, because my books are published there, work reasons, is it's it's the the point of origin of my family story. Um, So I'm always struck by a sense of family, a sense of warmth. It feels like home for me, even though I have never lived there, Um, just because the people that I love most have been from there, and many of them are still there so that is something that um always makes a new impression on me every no matter how many times i visit right and because there's something to it there's something about touching ground on the altitude where my mom was raised you know there's there's I can't put this into words. It's something that you probably know, you know, and I think everybody knows is something, you know, your your body and your soul and your heart have their own memory system. And I think that there are things that are just ignited when you return to that place.
0: Yeah, where you stand in front of the house of, mm-hmm. that was your mother's, exactly. where she grew up, where, you, where your father grew up.
1: Yeah, or even you just touch the objects that belong to them, or you know, it's it's amazing.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a, a mysticism mm-hmm. uh, to that to that kind of thing. Um do you ever do you ever find like when you come back from those trips, or first of all, how, how are you received in Colombia? Like how do they see you as a Colombian writer? Do they embrace you as a Colombian writer? I'm I'm curious.
1: I mean I can't speak for anybody else. Everyone has been nice to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um. But no, I, I, I just did think about it since some, you know, since, you know, because yeah. Mike, I'll give you a perfect example. My kids say that they're Cuban uh-huh. and they're second generation born right. in this country. Yeah. But culturally, they feel very connected mm-hmm. to cuba as a culture even if it's a place that they have only ever imagined yeah and do you do you feel colombian in that way
1: i think that things like that are so common but they also require us to really challenge our notions of what it means to belong to a place does it mean um that you have to exist within certain borders if that's the case did my parents become less colombian when they moved away You know, Um, so I think if we broaden our sense of what it means to to be of a place and we don't need to just reduce it to one word, Cuban or not Cuban, Colombian or not Cuban, or even all we give ourselves a hyphen in two words, Cuban American or Colombian American. You know, why can't we be more specific? Right. Mm -hmm. To describe our experiences of both being from a place and living elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I remember my dad. At one point, lived longer here than he had in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no way he was ever gonna say yeah. that he was that he was not Cuban. Yeah, did
1: know? he stop being Cuban? Right, no, right. of course not.
0: <laughs> um, talk to me about how um, some of those things then impact those thoughts that you have as you kind of go in. How that impacts your writing and when you write characters.
1: Um, I think when I'm thinking about characters, I, I think about the whole picture of their life, not just where they're from, where their life is now, what they do, how they spend their time, their families, um, their relationships. But I try to incarnate their entire life philosophy. Mm. And, of course, one's phlo- life philosophy only comes from your past experiences, good or bad, your traumas, heartaches, um, and that then informs what you give yourself permission to dream and desire in life, right? Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time just daydreaming about my characters before I even try to think about what words will come out of their mouth.
0: There's one thing I wanted thinking to think about. You, were, you mentioned that one of your, among your favorite writers was Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned specifically The Bluest Eye, which mm-hmm. I only read a couple of years ago. And that book's been banned in one of our school systems here. Uh, in the Pinellas County school system. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, do you ever imagine there are a point, you know, where will you will ever write something that someone will want to ban? <laughs> as insane as it is now.
1: Um, yeah, I haven't thought about it. And, you know. Um,
0: what do you think about when you see those, like, this, this not trend or movement, but you see these, these books that, like, you know, become seminal at, at one point.
1: You have to ask yourself when people want to control what other people are able to read when if it's fundamentally not um, damaging to a specific people, um, what what are they then trying to control? Why? Why the need to control knowledge?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's uh, that's something that I mean, it really drives writers right in the sense that they pushing against pushing back against existing stories that exist. You want to create new stories, You know, and um, so I I was wondering about that and, you know, like as you create the idea that there are parameters and limiters that might be put on you, I don't know, I I guess how do you feel about that?
1: Well, yeah, certain people are terrified of um, original thought and um, some people want to um, put barriers in place to prevent original thought in future generations. Artists have always come up against this. This is nothing new, right? Yeah. Um, so we can we can resist that, and we can hope for the best, but at the same time, I don't think artists and writers are ever going to stop doing what we do.
0: In the, in the last minute that we have, I wanted to ask you about those connections to culture. You mentioned how mm-hmm. they can shift and change and sometimes wane from one generation to another. Can you talk a little bit about passing some of those some of those things that are important to you to... That have been passed to you that would be interesting interesting for you to pass on or important for you.
1: To pass on. Oh, there is so much, and I can only hope to you know try to hold on to to a small part of all, all that's been gifted to me by virtue of inheritance through stories, through tradition, through culture, everything that I've received that really just was carried on through love. And I, I think that's the best inheritance, and that's where all our best family stories come through is with the way we demonstrate who we are through how we live our lives and how we love our loved ones.
0: Yeah, passing those family stories mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is how you keep... Is and you keep.
1: honoring the past by sharing those stories, right? Otherwise, they just disappear.
0: Well, today we've been speaking with the author Patricia Engel, the best-selling New York Times author who has a new story collection, The Faraway World. She's also a professor of creative writing at the University of Miami. And she uh, will be presenting her book uh, tomorrow at Books and Books at Coral Gables uh, at 7 p.m. Patricia, thank you so much for making time for us and coming in and sharing so much of yourself.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Carlos. I had a great time.
0: And that's Sundial for Thursday, February 2nd. Leslie Ovalle-Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer, social media editor, and Patricia's former student. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Muñoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepri cohen Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundial's engineer. And if you like that theme music, that is the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo. You can find them at GoPalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, we're joined by local chef Pushkar Marathi. He's been nominated for a James Beard Award for Best Chef in the South. His cuisine is rooted in the flavors of his homeland of India, It's also inspired by his travels from the Caribbean to Europe to the Middle East. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. RN public media